The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. again another new episode of serious fun as always i am your host dr brian carr this week the final of our three live podcasts from the 2019 brown county library comic-con this one uh we always like to do like one kind of big panel session at the at the library and this year uh i was joined by dr ryan martin of uwgb psychology and phd candidate morena bridges to talk about the idea of representation in superhero media inspired by the Academy Award winning Into the Spider-Verse film and its star Miles Morales. So this is that conversation. Anyone can wear the mask on serious fun. Hello and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun live at the Brown County Library Comic-Con. Let's go ahead and give it up for Comic-Con for a second. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Let's, let's clap for events. Love it. All right. Uh, I am your host and the podcasting world's equivalent of Beppo the Super Monkey. It's a thing. Look it up. Uh, Dr. Brian Carr. Serious Fun is a look at popular culture from the perspectives of the, uh, perspectives of the fans, academics, and professionals that make it what it is. With the success of Black Panther, and I am so happy to say this, if you are listening, you don't know that I'm actually dressed like a character from this movie, but the Academy Award winning Into the Spider-Verse, the question of representation in superhero media is no longer whether it makes sense to do it, but rather how you can justify no longer doing it. But why does representation matter? How can we make sure it's done properly? And why are superheroes in particular important for this question? Joining me today to discuss that is an all-star panel, starting with UWGB psychology professor, co-host of the Phoenix Studio shows All the Rage and Cannonball, that's canon with one N, frequent guest on Serious Fun, and shark enthusiast, Dr. Ryan Martin. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. And also with us today, we have a newcomer, uh, UWGB alum, Morena Bridges. Hello, Morena. Hi. Morena is currently earning her PhD in interdisciplinary studies with an emphasis on humanities and culture. Currently, uh, previously earned an MA in social justice and human rights and a BA in social change and development. She's a full-time geek and sometime writer whose pieces have appeared in For Harriet, Geek Quality, Persephone Magazine, and Shallow Graves Magazine. So welcome, Morena. And uh, I, I'm going to apologize in advance for serious fun, but uh, we're very, very glad to have you here. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. So uh, we have, uh, again, this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Um, and uh, the, the impetus for the show kind of came about because I was asking a friend of mine, if you could have a podcast at a library Comic-Con about something, what would it be? And he's like, Miles Morales? I'm like, perfect. So we're going to go ahead and go with that. Um, so I want to talk about uh, that character in particular. So Miles Morales was introduced um, back around 2011 in the Ultimate Comics universe. And Miles was essentially the Spider-Man that took over after that universe's Spider-Man was killed by the Green Goblin. Um, Miles uh, becomes Spider-Man and as and sort of through, okay, because comic books are weird, there are now in the current Marvel universe, after the universes were kind of smashed together by Doctor Doom, again, it's, it's, you just gotta go with me on this journey. Um, <laughs> there are now, two or three different Spider-Man, Miles is one of them, but more importantly, Miles was the central character in the 2018 film Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, and so the whole movie is really about this idea that uh, anybody who wants to be a hero, who has the chance to be, can be. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, whether you have the experience, anybody can wear the mask. And that's kind of the central thesis of the film. So I want to just kind of start off with a baseline and, and, and talk to both of you about this question because you're coming at it from very different perspectives and experiences. So uh, Morena, if that's okay, I'd like to begin with you. Yeah. Um, what does representation in this genre mean to you? Do you feel like you can often see yourself in these characters and stories? Um, now, 
more so, yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie, when I was growing up, I stayed pretty far away from any kind of comic book, fantasy, anything like that, specifically because I did not see myself in there. It wasn't until I became an adult and started to become aware of, you know, like Chris Claremont's run on Black Panther, for example, and things like that, that I started delving into it and opened up a whole new world for me. Um, and that's why it's important to me is just having that whole uh, playground to play in. So. And Ryan. Yeah, so for me it's different. I, um, well, people in the audience know this, but listeners might not. I'm a white man, so representation is a little different, but I have two uh, African-American children. One of them's right over there, one away for people, Reese. There he is. Um, the other one's downstairs, I think. Probably oh, at, the, at the... Oh, there he yeah, is. He's okay. just over there, I guess. And he's dressed um, like Spider-Man, yeah. actually. <laughs> he's just ignoring me. Um, uh, embarrassed by me, probably. But it, it does feel different uh, in, in that case, in that I think often about the, the media that they're seeing and whether or not they can see themselves uh, in literature, in books, in film, in television, and, and a host of other places. I just said literature and books. I realized that. I, was, I meant comic books um, and a host of other places. Now, so. hang on. Are you saying comics aren't literature? No, no, no. I was, I said literature than books and so. Right. Okay. I hear you. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm starting a fight for no reason. Yeah. No. Sounds great. Um, Okay. So, again, and and it's very important. I think and very interesting that you brought up that notion that the representational experience is different, right? Mm -hmm. That there has been no shortage of stories about white male characters in superhero media, in particular, going back to like the earliest pulp magazines and the sort of stories that kind of influenced that. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that is important to understand is that, uh, you know, we have a lot of kids in the audience. Hi, kids. Right. Okay. Hello. Yes. You're like, yes, we are children. Hello. Thank you for acknowledging us. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of research. And, and, and Marina, maybe you can kind of speak to some of this based on your work. There's been a lot of research talking about this genre as it pertains to kids, um, largely because this has always been a genre that's aimed, at least in part, toward kids. Um, what, what do you think, uh, maybe in terms of your own experience, maybe you can elaborate on what you've, what you've shared already um, about that impact and what it means like th- th- to have these representations? Um, from a personal experience, as I said before, I didn't, <laughs> it wasn't until I was actually an adult that I started getting into this kind of stuff and became the eternal 12-year-old. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And like I said, that had to do with discovering Things like, like I said, uh, Chris Claremont's run on Black Panther was a huge one for me because um, a lot of you may or may not know that, you know, a lot of these characters, Black Panther and um, Luke Cage and all of that, were not originally written in a very uh, (laughs) non-stereotypical way. Mm -hmm. So um, I think just speaking, you know, I wish as a child I had had that. I had something to glom onto and something to say, oh, look, there's someone that looks like me that can be a hero too and not just in the ways that um, people of color were traditionally represented at that time. And it's interesting you bring that up because I feel like there's almost, um, because there were, of course, there are representations, right? You do have people in the media who are like you. And do you feel that, um, like, when you're, when you're a kid, you kind of latch on to those a little bit more, you know, regardless of whether they're, like, the best representations? Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna share something that I talked about with my grandma. She's uh, Oneida native, and she really loves westerns, like mm-hmm. really loves them. And I'm always like, oh, the the representations of native people in these westerns are just terrible. And she had talked about we had watched um, this movie called Real Indians, where they were kind of critiquing these these representations of native people in these older films. And she said, well, when I was a kid, that's the only place I could see native people. Right, so she's not arguing and saying that they're good representations, but that's all that she had. So that's something that I've been kind of thinking about in terms of um, representation. I'm not saying that arguing for crummy stuff, but I'm when I'm looking back and going, well, that's all she had mm-hmm. to see herself in, and then going, how can we make that better? So what you're seeing is not just crummy representations. And Ryan, of course, as a, a parent. Um, how have you seen this uh, with your own kids? You know, I, I think for me, it's a little, my kids are, the oldest is almost 10. And um, he's nodding to confirm he is almost 10. Um, and <laughs> Like nine and three quarters, Dad, yeah. come on. <laughs> so um, 
uh, in that sense, I don't think in the last 10 years it's been at all impossible to find things, but you do have to work harder than I had to work for myself as a kid or mm -hmm. for my parents. But, but there, are, there have been opportunities um, in that sense. I think one of the things that has been, that I've been thinking about lately though is that so um, when my kids were younger they got a lot of books you know that those and I love these books but the who is series or who are like or what is mm -hmm. you know and so who is Harriet Tubman I think was a recent one uh, that my son was reading um, one of the things that I was thinking is interesting is that he was exposed to those books early um, but I don't know that he necessarily liked them until recently and in some ways because I think that content was really scary mm -hmm. um, and that it was, it, you know, I think in some ways that content was very, very personal in a way that was upsetting and so I think I'm finding it more fun and, and much easier to be able to share more fiction mm -hmm. uh, that way and that's one of the things that comic books and that Miles provides that I think is really important. Um, right. That way, that that being able to find things, and actually another great example, relatively, is the the Captain Underpants mm -hmm. series. You know, which I think provides another opportunity for someone to see a child like them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, engaging in the world that way. And, yeah. So that's very interesting you bring that up because, and, and a lot of this seems to be kind of tied to this notion of like young adult fiction and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Like we are seeing a little bit more of that the story being told. Whether it's something like Captain in Underpants, or you've got, um, uh, you know, you've, you've got stories like um, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, uh, there was the, um, the Darkest Hours, or something like that, or there was something. There was like a story that was almost kind of like X Men, but it was about. Um, I don't know this one. Okay, so I'm completely out on an island here. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Anyone? Um, but but it is almost interesting that you do start to see, uh, especially fiction aimed at young people, kind of becoming more of this thing, like the hate you give and that kind of yes. thing, yep. um, becoming a lot more of a space where you can actually interrogate these ideas. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, as someone who researches social change, um, Marina, like, do you find that fiction does kind of lend itself to that, or is is a good way to kind of introduce these ideas to people? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, one of the things I really like, and uh, I'm paraphrasing like every um, fantasy writer of color here when I say this is like it you know the experiences of people of color specifically uh, really lend itself to science fiction right like uh, right now you have a movie coming out that's in the works is gonna be on Netflix and it's about indigenous people and it's a zombie apocalypse situation called blood quantum and it's you know how are we talking about blood quantum and colonization when you have these zombies that are literally coming in to rip you to pieces, right? We're talking about colonization or if we're talking about, you know, aliens and Star Trek or we're talking about these superheroes, I feel like you can see a lot of analogies um, between the experiences of uh, marginalized groups or, of course, the X-Men, right, is mm -hmm. a big one where people can use that to um, kind of allegorically talk about these experiences. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, I mean, fiction makes it even... I don't know, for me, it makes me feel sometimes a little braver when talking about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, it makes it relatable for people. It gives them kind of an easier access into, because I can go to somebody, hey, you know, what's happening in the X-Men to these, you know, problematic nature aside to these mutants is not so dissimilar to what has happened to XYZ group. Mm -hmm. Let's start a conversation. But are there, could you also argue that maybe there's a point where it becomes less useful, like where it becomes so abstracted that it almost undercuts this as well, or? Um, I think it depends on uh, maybe a little bit of what your intent is. Mm -hmm. So I've definitely had situations, actually, I had given a, a presentation not too long ago at like, I don't know, this academic pop culture conference, I don't know. And we were talking about X-Men, actually, specifically about sort of the usefulness of it as an allegory, because there are there's a point where it becomes problematic or where it becomes not a useful in that manner mm -hmm. and um one of the people who was there was like you know for me the reason it becomes not useful in that manner is because you have a situation where it might be allegorically about whatever 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 but you don't actually see those people in the comics mm -hmm. right you've got one man who's disabled or who has who's living with a disability you've got one prominent woman of color and that's pretty much it that you've got going on mm -hmm. in the main team there so that's where it becomes kind of an issue for me because I'm like, here's a way you can talk about these marginalized groups without actually having them there. Right. 
And also the fact that for a lot of them, it's like, okay, so the thing that separates you from humanity is the fact you can shoot lasers out of your eyes, exactly. right? That's, right? That's not really, like, that's a bit of a different, compar- it's not a one-to-one comparison in terms of utility. Well, and more empowering, it, that's the other argument I was making, too, is like, um, at that conference was like, you know, they have power, superpowers that they can utilize, you know, to protect themselves. Um, not so much, right, for marginalized peoples. So, you know, if somebody's, um, I don't know, you're talking about, like, for example, police brutality issues mm-hmm. or things like that. Like, I can't shoot lasers out of my eyes to make that not right, happen. Right. Yeah, you're not able to control the weather yeah. and, yeah, like, lightning and all that. Exactly. And so maybe that's also where the, the metaphor kind of breaks down a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Ryan, do you have any thoughts on this? Or? Not, I've, not necessarily that specifically. Sure. Um, I've been. I had a thought that just escaped me That's okay. moments ago. Well, you can always come back yeah, when you please. think of it. Um, I, d- I did fact check. It's the darkest minds is what I was thinking of, not uh, the darkest hours, which I'm I've pretty sure was like a World War II drama or something. I, I don't think know. it was. I've yeah, that sounds that. right. Like, okay. I, I mean, again, we're not fact checking. It's just kind of loosey goosey <laughs> right now. Um, so there's been a couple studies that have actually been done looking at representation, specifically in superhero related media. The most, uh, the, the one that kind of sprung to mind right off the top of my head was uh, back in 2018, the uh, women's Media Center partnered with BBC America, um, you know, kind of as like a way to tie into the re- the release of the new Doctor Who with the first female Doctor, um, and they wanted to talk about how um, you know women and girls, uh, not just you know white women and girls, but also women and girls of color, how they responded to representation, seeing themselves in the media and the characters in the media, superheroes, that kind of thing. And um, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that uh, the research talks about that. Um, not only do they want to see more characters like them, but also, and this is maybe something we can kind of jump off from a little bit, is that uh, when it comes to like being willing to speak out, talk in class, you know, the confidence aspect of it, um, we did find that um, you know almost disproportionately, um, people like uh, you know like white majority uh, male students that sort of thing they always scored a lot higher on the things asking questions like do you feel you can speak out do you feel like people will listen to you do you feel like um, your opinion matters and you know students who were not that you know female students um, people of color etc felt like substantially lesser than that and you know we also have studies that have shown that uh, having that sort of positive representation in a story like you know um, you're wearing a Green Lantern sweater, so the first thing I thought about you know like so you know in the Justice League Unlimited series they very consciously went out of their way to include John Stewart the African American Green Lantern and you know there have been research and looking into this like you know did was that uh, and in fact if you looked um, around the time you saw a lot of people um, of color not just kids but also you know older fans that sort of thing really rally behind Green Lantern as their character, right? And there's something to that, and the research would actually indicate um, that seeing that character kind of makes you feel like, yeah, okay, I can do this, I can be part of this, I'm legitimized, but not having those characters kind of makes you feel like, okay, does this story really apply to me? Does the lessons really apply to me? Because I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm part of what's going on right. here. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's for me. It's really interesting. For for years, I've actually, it, it, you know, Halloween is right around the corner, and when it comes to like the getting of costumes, we we've already done that this year. But there's been a lot of years where I've where I've suggested like Black Panther or things like that, mm-hmm. and um, they haven't been interested. And mm-hmm. I I do think it's worth. There's something to the fact that my my son this year um, has decided to go as Spider Man just mm-hmm. you know six seven months after. Into the Spider Verse came out, and this morning, and he gave me permission to tell this story. But this morning, I actually it was very nice of you to ask. Yes, thank you. Um, So he, uh, I asked him, you know, when you because I think technically the costume he's wearing might be a Peter Parker costume. Yeah. Um, But uh, I said, when you're with with the costume, are you thinking of this as a? Do you think of yourself as Peter Parker? Do you think of yourself as Miles Morales? Do you think of yourself as just Tobin in a Spider Man costume? His name is Tobin, Um, and. Uh, he said, um, "He said, I think probably Miles Morales because he's got the same color skin as me, okay, um, or because his skin is brown and my skin is brown." And so, you know, it really—I think that really says something and like sort of speaks volumes about what this movie might have meant to him or what he saw when he when he saw it. Marina, um, in terms of that, I mean, one of the the things that I was actually just looking into was the sort of idea of what it means to have these representations in media and how 
we go about these representations, right? So one of the things that happens um, with children, and this study that I had looked at was specifically with Native children, but this one kind of confirmed that or echoes that in terms of just being able to see um, the possibilities for yourself in life, right? So when you're able to see more people that look like you in the media doing different things, right? Not regulated to specific kind of things or just not there at all. It allows your imagination to grow as a child and as a person to see um, different paths for yourself in life and different abilities that you can have, different things that you can do. Whereas when those representations aren't there, then your imagination becomes constricted or constrained. And I think that's kind of, you know, mm -hmm. the biggest, um, uh, the thing for me, you know, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier about getting into this kind of comic book fantasy kind of stuff really opened up my imagination really big in a way that, you know, I didn't have that as a child um, to the same degree. So I think that can be, you know, one of the greatest things is opening up the possibilities for a child and the way that they see themselves and who they can be. Mm -hmm. Very, okay, so uh, that, there's a lot to kind of unpack there, right? Yeah. Um, and it almost, would you argue there's almost this moral imperative then that yes. you, you sort of yeah. have to do this, especially in media aimed at kids? Yes. Okay. Um, and so we can come back to that a little bit because I think that moral imperative does become kind of an important theme of some of the questions we're going to be asking here in a little bit. But I, I'm starting to wonder if we are actually seeing companies, and in fact, I posited this at the beginning, if we're actually starting to see companies like look at this and say, yes, in fact, this is a thing we should be doing. So, um, you know, in the superhero genre alone, just looking at film, okay, we have uh, a, uh, and, and so we're starting to see more characters outside of that sort of straight white male mold. Um, just this next year, we're going to have Harley Quinn and the all-female Birds of Prey team headline their own movie. Um, they've even um, changed the ethnicity of a couple of the characters. So Black Canary is traditionally white. They have made her an actress of color now. Um, they're having, there's a uh, Latinx actress in there. I believe there's an Asian actress in there. So they have a much more diverse lineup. Um, we are seeing Black Widow get her own movie. We are seeing a sequel to Wonder Woman. We are seeing uh, Marvel's new The Eternals, where they are kind of getting a relatively obscure Jack Kirby team and turning them into what's probably going to be the next big kind of franchise. And the franchise, the characters are a diverse arrangement uh, in terms of gender, race, and sexual orientation. And all of these movies are going to be directed by women. And in fact, the Harley Quinn and Eternals movies are going to be directed by women of color. Uh, Marvel's future slate also features its first film with a, uh, a, a solo Asian lead in Shang-Chi, as well as a Disney Plus streaming show about the Pakistani-American superhero Miss Marvel, who you can also see on the screen behind us. Um, so with all that in mind, um, do you think this is the turning point? Do you think we are starting to kind of finally see companies say, wait a minute, if nothing else, there's profit to be had? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because yeah. that's exactly what I wanted to say is that I feel like, I mean, I'm glad to see it. I'm not knocking it. It's just that I feel like, you know, and studies show this, right, that people of color, women spend a lot of money um, on entertainment, a lot of their disposable cash. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with what they believe will sell and get mm -hmm. people in the seats. Um, I would hope that one step further that will come down the line is I think, you know, beyond a, a capitalist motive is that um, really behind the scenes needs to change mm -hmm. because all of these kind of studio heads and stuff are still white dudes for the mm -hmm. most part, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not sure um, how meaningful the change is until it starts to become more of a systemic change rather than just what we're seeing on our movie screens. Right, and, but what's interesting though, like it, it does still in a lot of ways, even if we aren't getting the behind the scenes change, like there is still, because the, the, the very clear thing, kind of the theme in entertainment industry is basically you have to show that something makes money, unless of course it's a movie about a white guy, um, in which case you can lose money on those all day long. And it's like, you know, so everyone like, you know, and, and it's weird because every time you now have a movie starring a woman or a person of color come out, it's now like, oh boy, I hope this is good. I hope this does really well because then we might not get more if it doesn't. Whereas if, you know, we keep putting, um, let's, uh, like, you know, Tom Cruise can make a bomb and they'll still hire Tom Cruise, right? right, right. You know, um, there's, they've tried for years to, they tried for years to make Sam Worthington a thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there, this, it's, so the stakes are a lot higher. But once you have stuff like Black Panther coming out and making, you know, um, over a billion dollars, getting all these Oscar nominations, winning some of them, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, et cetera, now these 
studios are scrambling to be like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> like, yeah. we've right. got to kind of follow up on that. You know, yeah. and that's you'd asked before if this was a moral imperative, and I think we both said yes, it's a moral imperative. They don't see it that way, though. Right. They see it as a financial imperative, and and I think it's you know, movies in particular, film in particular, is so low risk when it, or you know, or so risk averse, I should say, yeah. when it comes to putting out film. They only want to put out things that they feel guaranteed to make money. Mm -hmm. And I think that they just had to get banged over the head, and they did with both Black Panther and Wonder Woman, mm -hmm. to essentially say, like, yeah, this, uh, there is money to be made here. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, now they're responding the way you would see. My hope is that it leads to the kind of structural change you're talking about, Marina, that it, it leads to the kind of... Um, uh, that, that we end up having some people in power who are not just white dudes, um, that that, because that's when you'll see some of the systemic change that we want. But it's really, I mean, so it's a good thing, but it's, I'm not sure it's happening for the right reasons. Sure. And, and this kind of brings up a question when we talk about that systemic change. Um, do you think, Morena, that, uh, and, and let me see if I can kind of parse this question out the way I want to ask it. So when it comes to getting that systemic change, that ground up change, right? Does it matter when, uh, do we have to have the social change first and then the media follows? Or do you think the media is a big part of that social change? Oh God, that is such a big question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm gonna sit back yeah. like, right here. <laughs> literally, I've spent so much of my academic career having this like, does policy come first or does cultural change come first? How does that go? Yeah. <laughs> um, or is it just, you know, wow. Um, Okay, I'm just going to be upfront and say I don't have a definitive answer for that. It's right. something that I'm continuing to explore. But I feel like um, those things do go hand in hand. I was just thinking as um, Dr. Martin was talking, I was, when I was thinking um, based on what he said about how, okay, so you have these studios. They've kind of got knocked over the head. They're starting to do things like Ms. Marvel, which, yay, mm -hmm. the Eternals, all these kind of things. And I'm wondering if that's going to open more space now for people who are really passionate about these stories to be able to go in there and continue making more of them, and that will help with the sort of cultural change. So I think they go hand in hand. Right. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg situation. It's, well... <laughs> Well, it was also interesting, too, because when we look at Black Panther, right, so Ryan Coogler being hired to direct that movie was a really important thing, right? Yes. This is a guy who had made his bones in independent cinema, um, had done a lot of really kind of high-end um, sort of drama talking about the black experience. And so for Marvel to hire him to do that, that was a pretty, I, mean, I wouldn't say it's a gamble necessarily because he was a very a clearly accomplished filmmaker. He'd done big budget stuff with like Creed and whatnot. But to sort of hand the reins of a major superhero franchise over to a director who hadn't done that still requires a certain amount of faith or a certain amount of risk on the studio's part. Um, and maybe that's something you get to when you already have the cultural cachet of a Marvel comics, right? Where you, know, where you can basically put out anything with a Marvel brand on it. It's going to break yep. 500 million worldwide at least. Yep. Right. Yep. And so, like, I, it, it's, I don't know, maybe, I, I just, it's just the getting over that point where you're willing to take those chances before you, there's no risk, I think, is the biggest thing, right? Yep. I agree. And, and I don't see that happening anytime soon with, with f movies in particular. I mm -hmm. just think that they're in so, you know, there's a reason why everything we, all the big films that come out are, sequels or based on a comic book or part of a franchise mm -hmm. or remakes and it's because they it's just so hard to get an audience there otherwise and mm -hmm. so i just don't see them taking those risks when it comes to to movies uh i just don't see that happening i'm i'm more hopeful actually for things like netflix and mm -hmm. for for streaming services that way so that is actually um because i was at a, a a conference and that was one of the things um one of the researchers talked about was she was very interested in this idea of the streaming bubble and whether it was going to burst but also the fact that the streaming bubble because they are so desperate for content yep. they're willing to take a chance on stuff they wouldn't normally do yep. so you know there's almost like a technological determinism aspect to this right that mm -hmm. the technology being what it is is almost what's sort of driving these <laughs> studios to take those chances right well, when you think of things, like I'm thinking of YouTube, right? I'm super into YouTube at this point in life. I'm a millennial. Kill me. Um, <laughs> and Netflix and all these kind of things. And that's one of the things, you know, that me and my friends that watch a lot of YouTube talk about is it opens up all of this space for content that you would not probably get. You know, I think uh, Disney owns, what, like 70% of the mainstream movie market at this point with all their dot dang mergers. And, mm -hmm. you know, so you're pretty much going to get what you're going to get out of them. So having these other avenues where it's not as much of a financial risk or you can just go on there and put whatever you want and build an audience. I mean, there are still barriers and things like that, but um, 
I think that's been really interesting to see, and I'm hoping that that will have a little bit of a ground-up mm -hmm. effect. It's hard to say, given that these studios are becoming more and more um, merged together, yeah. So, which is concerning, but... That's a whole other question. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> yeah. other topic. And you mentioned The Hate You Give earlier, uh -huh. which I think, and this is an interesting example, because this is a best-selling book that I don't have faith would have been made into a movie if Netflix hadn't been the ones to do it. I, I don't think that becomes... Wasn't it a Netflix production? I thought it was, wasn't it? Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, so we're fact-checking again in All real right. time. Y'all yeah. talk. Yeah. Well, and when I remember earlier, I was talking about the movie Blood Quantum. That's a Netflix production. Right. It's an indie movie right. that these native people, these indigenous filmmakers, got together, and Netflix was like, "Yeah, we'll take a chance. We'll throw some money at you mm -hmm. and let you get that done." You know, and that's. I don't know. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it is, and that's uh, and you know that's one thing we can we can poke fun at Netflix for you know <laughs> kind of being just this glut of like a fire hose of content, right? right? It's not so much about you know like curating the content; it's just throwing as much of it as possible at you. But part of that is they are willing to say, okay, if you're a filmmaker who's not getting a chance in the studio system, come to us, pitch us. We'll probably buy it. We'll probably run it. And like that's a really powerful ally to have if your interest is trying to diversify the kind of voices and what you see in the media so like that's one of the nice things about the streaming glut I guess and um, but but there's also this weird kind of um, marginalization that comes with it I guess for lack of a better term because you know I'm looking at like okay cool they're making a Miss Marvel movie as a Miss Marvel fan I'm so excited she's like I, I think she's one of the best characters they've created in a long time but they're doing it on the streaming service they're not doing it on the on the movie screen like the big you know once you, when you decide that you're going to put a character in a movie, it has a different level of cultural right. cachet. And even if they do it later, it's still like she was on TV first. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of, that's one of the many arguments I keep getting into with my little geek friends about. Uh, Ms. Marvel actually was one of the big ones where I'm like, it's really interesting that they have Captain Marvel on screen, but they're having Ms. Marvel on the Disney Plus. You know, you got to pay $6.99 extra plus Hulu and have another service. I feel like when it's on the big screen um it just it gives it, it's it's a whole level of legitimization i guess mm -hmm. for lack of a better way to put it for yeah. these characters and for what they represent right so. because you're also talking about a budget that's substantially higher you're yes. talking about a product rollout these are not just movies onto themselves they're also the centerpiece of a larger marketing campaign these studios are willing to throw that kind of money into it and like yeah so you could put you could make the daredevil show right and Daredevil, it's popular, people will watch it, but it doesn't have the splash culturally that a big movie like Black Panther would, right? And so, like, that's, and that's kind of the thing with the, the Spider-Verse movie. When I first heard about it, as a Miles fan, I'm just like, oh, doing a cartoon with him, they can't put him in an actual movie. Now, luckily, it came out as one of the best movies ever. So, like, <laughs> so it worked out okay, but there is that still kind of weird marginalization where they're interested, but they're still very hesitant to do that. Right. I was incorrect, by the way. It, 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 premiered, it premiered at Toronto. I'm actually glad to say that. It did get picked up by Netflix right. eventually. I think that is where it found much of its audience, right. but it wasn't originally Netflix. Yeah, and, and yeah, so there are studios that are still doing it, and I think right. you know, there's also the push to kind of do that as like a, a, a prestige picture thing, right, for awards and all that. Right. Um, granted, they still give it to Green Book, but whatever. Right. I, I do think one of the things <laughs> that actually sort of complicates that, that whole sort of the, the streaming service is that sometimes I think that the streaming service content is just better. I mean, they're doing a, I think sometimes the, 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 the storytelling there ends up being, they can unpack more and there's more there. So, um, so I'm happy that sometimes, but I agree with you that there is more cachet with being a, mm -hmm. a Hollywood film, a summer film in particular. Yeah, so it'd be nice. It would be nice to have her in there. And, and I love how they kind of couched it by saying, well, we might put her in movies later. Right. Like, okay, cool. Like, well, then I had, like, because I remember having conversations, like, why don't they just do Miss Marvel? Like, well, they got to do Captain Marvel first. I'm like, no, they don't. Do they, though? They can yeah. do anything they want. Like, yeah. this is not, like, you're not, like, these are not actual people, right? Like, right. you can tell the story. I mean, like, look, I love Captain Marvel, too. But, like, you know, you could theoretically jump ahead and tell Kamala's story, right? Like, it's not that difficult. They did Venom without Spider-Man. You can do it. Well, and as someone who is... You know, not part of the. I, I have not been a comic book fan much of my life. I mean, that's. This I'm just going to start coming to your office yeah. and throwing comics at this, you. Yeah, this is relatively new for me. Um, but uh, the, the thing that's interesting is Marvel is now at a point where they can put anything on the screen, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be interested in seeing it as someone who's totally unfamiliar with all that. I have not heard of most of the characters that they're introducing to mm -hmm. the series at this point, but it doesn't matter because um, I, I know it's a great. It's, the, it's been a great product. Yeah. So, so there's re no reason not to do it at this point. 
Disney's pretty much printing money at this point, yeah. so yeah. they can do whatever they want. So when I hear these kind of things at this point, I'm yeah. like, ah, that doesn't hold a lot of sway. Right. It's like, well, thanks for eventually getting to it, I guess. Right. right? right. You got you did the talking tree before you did the <laughs> <laughs> anything else, right? Like, yeah. Anyway. Um, so what do you think we could do then in, in light of these conversations to... Uh, improve the quality of representation in this genre and, and maybe just sort of in the media more broadly? Like, what are some steps we could take to do that? I don't know. You don't know? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I did. Because we'd already <laughs> mentioned kind of like the behind the scenes sort of thing, like really kind of promoting those voices and that kind of stuff. But I wonder almost if there isn't like a need to, like like some kind of like structural thing where you're 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 giving like a studio or somebody who's willing to like specifically go out and find people who have these voices and have these stories and then give them what they need to actually find distributors and that kind of thing like well, and I feel like at least I don't know either, so I'm gonna just say that <laughs> disclaimer, but i to speak to your structural change, I feel like part of it has to uh, there's kind of there's kind of a, a, a yeah, going back and forth with the studio system. Like I said, Disney's pretty much printing money at this point. They own so much of the market, they can put out whatever they want, and they're going to make decent money probably, right? But on the other hand of that is it makes it really easy to to um, to kind of drown out or just you know make it so that a lot of independent filmmakers are not able to to break into this. So I wonder if part of it has to do with um, some dismantling of this kind of studio system where these major studios are the ones that control all, most of the content that mm -hmm. gets to your big screen. If you're going to go down to like the Marcus movie theater and see something, right, it's not going to be usually a lot of these independent films. They won't even run right. a right. lot, you know. I remember I had to like, like you know, the, uh, the Marcus, so there's two, if, for those of you not familiar with the city, there are two Marcus theaters and one of them will sometimes show smaller stale stuff. One of them won't. The east side ones sometimes. Yeah, they generally don't though. I remember yeah. when Black Klansman came out, I had to drive to the west side and Oh yeah, yeah. And and like I'm like I was I was all mad because like, why is this movie coming out? And I like checked, like, oh it's because I was looking at Google and not the actual showtimes, but still I'm incensed. <laughs> um, but yeah, but no, you're right. Like there is this kind of thing where you uh, you, you almost have to ask a bigger question about um, the consolidation of media power. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, there is no imperative to break up Disney the same way there would have been when Microsoft was coming out and like, because they, because entertainment isn't sort of looked at that same way. But you think that maybe there's like a, a, a argument to be made that because media and entertainment can be so powerful that we really should start to regulate them and say that it shouldn't just be one company control. Cause I think like the stats show that Disney owned um, over half of the actual summer box office this year. And I yeah. think of the actual top 10 movies this year, the only reason they didn't, they aren't likely to get all top 10 is because Dumbo flopped. Had Dumbo been a success, there's a, there was a chance that all 10 would have been Disney films. Because Star Wars ain't going to flop. So right. like, they're, they're, they're going to have, they're going to they're gonna pretty much run the table. Right. Well, I think you said in a previous episode of the show that something like what, six of the top seven movies this summer were yeah. all, I think, I think it was only probably Hobbs and Shaw that wasn't a, yeah. a Disney movie. So, I, I'm assuming we're including Pixar in that, right? Yes. Disney, yeah, Disney, yeah. Pixar is a Disney thing. Yeah. So it's been interesting to see online because you know I'm a big geek, so I'm online in the fandom communities. And what was really interesting is when Disney was merging with Fox, right? They're buying out Fox. I saw so many. Uh, Marvel fans that were really happy about that because they're not thinking about media consolidation and what that means. Right. Um, structurally, they're like, oh, all my favorite Marvel characters yeah. are now going to be together in the same universe. That's awesome. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't, okay. <laughs> Thor can punch oh. Doctor Doom. Exactly. Yay. And I'm like, I, I don't know what that means in terms of, you know, um, consolidation and who has the power behind the scenes and, and what that means for smaller filmmakers being able to break into the business or get their stuff actually in front of audiences without having to go around the studio system, mm -hmm. right? Which, as we talked about earlier, there are more opportunities to do that now, right? right? But it's still, uh, well, it's powerful. And there's also the exhibition aspect of it, right? Like yes. um, Disney kind of sets the terms now with theaters and yes. can right. say, like, if you want to show Star Wars, for example, you have to do this many screenings. You have to do you have to kind of arrange this sort of profit sharing. Um, and they also has been, uh, you know, revival theaters have been uh, hit hard by this because, OK, if you want to show Alien, it's the 40th anniversary of Alien. Um, you want to show Alien, well, Disney owns that now, and they're not particularly interested in letting you do that because they want to save it for streaming or their other platforms. They don't want you to be able to see it any other way, 
right? And once I realized that, like, hey, Disney owns Alien and Predator and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, this is this ain't gonna be good. <laughs> like, this right. is, yeah, Die Hard is now a Disney movie, right? Like, this wow. is weird. This is what? <laughs> well, yeah, because it was, a, I believe, it was, you're right. It's yeah, just yeah. funny to hear yeah, it Die said Hard's out loud. A Fox movie. That's yeah. weird. I will admit there was a brief moment where they were talking, where there were talks about James Bond being bought by Disney. Yeah. And I had a moment where I thought, wait, does this mean I'm going to get a theme park? Will there be a James Bond theme park? And so you're like, so, and and can I order tickets now? So maybe that'll be good, but no. I get you. Yeah, we're getting to some like borderline Marxism, like we're, <laughs> yeah, like, we're we, kind of like, we went way off the rails. You know, no, but, 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 <laughs> no sorry, we didn't. But, but in a lot of ways, they're they're very closely related, right? The economic imperative can't be divorced from. Well, what the kind representation of representation question? We're yeah, get. yeah, right. exactly. So, yeah, okay. Um, so that's kind of like so the the answer to that question how do we, how do we fix it and what can we do? It's a really really hard one, but you know, let's think about it from this other standpoint. Maybe it's not so much if if you could kind of circumvent this and you said okay, you had the ability to tell a story you have the ability to share an experience. What's the story or what's a something that's not being told that should be? Like what's an experience that you think would really benefit from having that sort of cachet? Maybe not of a superhero film, but maybe. Um, that, that, like what would you do if you could do anything? Hmm. I know you gave us this question I in did. advance yeah. and I still didn't prepare for it. That's okay. Um, <laughs> so I have to think on the spot. Hmm. You know, I've been thinking, so I haven't, seen this movie yet and I mm-hmm. haven't um, I don't know I actually haven't heard great things about it but it got me thinking about things and that's the new Harriet Tubman movie mm-hmm. um, that's just come out I, I do think that there are a lot of stories there like some maybe biopics that could and should be told I think maybe told the right way so I don't know if that's the best version of this yet um, though I've heard I guess I've heard mixed things about it so um, but I do think there are a lot of stories there that haven't been told that I would like to see told okay um, I was thinking about this earlier. I, <laughs> I also have been thinking about this and kind of chatting back and forth. I was chatting earlier with a friend about this specific question, mm-hmm. right? And um, two things came up. One of the things that came up is um, uh, I have an older brother who is developmentally disabled, and he really, really loves seeing movies that have characters, main characters that are developmentally disabled. And I was thinking, like, in terms of comic book movies and fantasy movies and stuff, I don't really get to see anything like that. He doesn't get to see anything like that, so that would just be something awesome mm-hmm. to have happen and uh, open, uh, opening up those kind of experiences. Yep. The other thing that I'm thinking about a lot is, and I keep going back to this movie, Blood Quantum, and the reason why is because I think horror sometimes can be a really great genre to talk about um, the sort of collective experiences of marginalized peoples. Um, so, right, I think a lot about... Um, vampirism and zombie movies and these kinds of things and how they i don't know they weirdly speak to my personal experiences and collective experiences as like mm-hmm. a queer woman of color right so i think about that a lot in terms of i had a story that i wanted to tell or ugh, god i can't even believe i'm bringing up big bang theory but i'm gonna do it <laughs> i you know because i wanted to like the premise of this i was like oh i want to like it oh no it sucks it's terrible i hate it <laughs> um, and it's not really for me um but i was like wouldn't it be great if there was like you know my friends and i are like we could be them except for like way less busted right because mm-hmm. we're like a group of queer women who are just super ridiculous geeks and that's yeah. all we talk about is fandom stuff and research that we want to do right. right so that would be fun to see so it was interesting you brought the uh, developmentally disabled uh, aspect because I actually had read about, um, there's an author, Sheena C. Uh, Sheena C. Howard, um, and she's done a lot of research into black and queer identities in comics and that kind of thing. Um, but she also co-wrote with uh, David F. Walker, an author who has worked on like Luke Cage and a bunch of other stuff, a series called Superb. And the main character in uh, Superb is actually a character with uh, Down syndrome. So that is something, like, there is property out there. Like, if they're looking to acquire that, and it's a superhero story, they could actually, the, the, it's out there. You could tell that story. Like, there's something that, you know, because studios like to just buy stuff that's already done, right? So like, they don't have to write this. It's already out there. So, yeah, there's, there is hope. There is stuff out there, at least. You just have to kind of look for it, which is kind of the problem. You know, I, I noticed after the last, uh, I can't remember, Crimes of Grindelwald. I yeah. Think I, one of the things I, I was curious about, I went and looked online afterwards, and there's a lot of buzz about whether or not the main character in that story, Scamander? Newt Scamander, yeah. Newt Scamander. If he has um, mild autism, mm. that's been, and but it, 
I think it'd be really nice to to live in a world where people didn't have to guess or speculate, where if it was just made a little more overt. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, because I saw a lot of people kind of rallying behind the idea that this that this might be a hero with with mild autism, and it'd be nice if they didn't have to like guess or speculate mm-hmm. or, or in, if it was just over in that way. Well, don't worry. I'm sure in uh, two or three years, J.K. Rowling will want some headlines. She'll tweet, <laughs> she, she'll she tweet that that what? was her intent all along. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other, that's a whole other episode <laughs> of this podcast is J.K. Rowling's Twitter. Um, okay. Um, so we want to open it up for a little bit. If anybody has any questions or wants to make any comments, um, we do have a mic, so feel free to come on up and do it. Okay, so um, my question has to do with, like, um, I mean, these are both significant things, but the difference between, like, race bending or gender bending and already existing character like Spider-Man or Green Lantern um, versus creating a whole new character with, um, like, their own story and their own background and... And just because they're both really important, but just your thoughts on the difference between those. Who wants to start? I'm going to step out for this one. Okay. This feels like more of a you Do you want me to? Okay. So there's, you're, <laughs> you you're, hitting, you're hitting on a really interesting question here. And this is something that, you know, so I do a lot of work looking at um, representation specifically in superhero media. And, you know, you know, are we, like, does it make sense to create a new character and, uh, or to, you know, take an existing character and change their ethnicity? And the, the answer is really complicated. So in superhero media, what sells is what's familiar, okay? And there's a lot more chance you're gonna sell that story and be able to tell that story if you can say, this is Miles Morales Spider-Man as opposed to, this is Miles Morales uh, the, arachno kid right that brand carries with it a lot of cachet and so historically what companies have done to try to kind of address this because super you know we, we can kind of like we poke at them and we say they aren't really trying but they have tried and one of the ways that they have done this is like well we don't like we don't think that putting out a character who is this uh, uh, who fits into this particular category will sell but if we say they are a Green Lantern we can sell that comic right and so those brands, those characters actually do have something of value. And so what they'll usually do is with these legacy identities, they'll say, this is a different person with the same powers, costume, et cetera. When it comes to film, you know, the, the kind of classic example is, you know, Scarlett Johansson playing the character in Ghost in the Shell or, um, you know, something like that. But there's also something of value in saying, okay, hey, why don't we cast Michael Clark Duncan as the kingpin? Or why, you know, why can't we make Heimdall black or something like that? There's no, like, these are, again, these are not historical figures. You can do whatever you want to them, right? And it's sometimes it's like, and, and the really kind of inspired casting is when you say, okay, this person's personality, their demeanor, their stature fits this character. It doesn't matter the color of their skin, right? And there's something really powerful to that. So, um, you know, it, it, it's in a way like it's because there are so few roles for people of color in the first place in the media, you know, I don't, I'm not bothered if they said, okay, Peter Parker's black now. Awesome. Cool. Let's do that. I mean, let's also, you know, but again, of course, with Miles Morales, I'm also, I really want to see his story, not just, you know, trying to just change the name, right? right? Um, but, you know, if we wanted to say, okay, what, you know, we could have a black Superman, why not, right? Why can't we tell that story? Um, whereas it's a bit different than having, like, Jake Gyllenhaal be a Persian prince, right? <laughs> um, and I keep coming back to the fact they had an actual Persian prince lined up to play the Prince of Persia. He had auditioned for it and everything. He could sword fight and horseback ride, and he was an actual Persian prince. And they're like, no, we're going to go with the dude who, uh, from Nightcrawler is what we're oh, going to do. Yeah, yeah, like, it's... And I love Nightcrawler, don't get me wrong. It's a, a movie that I loved, and I'm only going to ever watch once. But... Uh, but it was just weird, right? And, and like again, that comes back to that sort of risk-averse nature of the studio system. Um, so yeah, there's, I think there's definitely a difference, right? Taking a character that is traditionally white and casting a person of color to play them, like they're doing with Black Canary in the Birds of Prey movie, that's a very different thing than saying, this character is traditionally of color, let's cast a white actor. One is kind of creating opportunity, the other is taking it away. Does that make sense? I also, I think sometimes it can add layers to care specific characters yeah. okay and disclaimer i used to run a blog on tumblr called f yeah race bending mm-hmm. and so and it was basically a lot of fans of color who would send in their kind of race bent right um mm-hmm. white characters that were now played by actors of color and a lot of them had backstories for why right like one person was like oh wouldn't it be great if um 
what's his superhero name? I keep wanting to call him Danny. Iron Fist. Yeah. If Iron Fist was played by, you know, a Chinese American person, and what if his backstory is he's trying to reconnect with his culture mm -hmm. and he's been kind of displaced as a Chinese American, what does that mean to be a first generation yeah. uh, or the child of an immigrant and these kind of things, you know? So they would have backstories that mm -hmm. would be like, here's how it adds depth and interest to this character to make them a character of color. Right. So I think there's that aspect too. Yeah, and there was also like I saw fan casting, maybe just people circles I ran saying, What if we got Sung Kang from the Fast and Furious movies to play Doctor Strange? I'm right. like, Yeah, let's right. do that. Why don't we? Right? Or like why how about Keanu Reeves to play Doctor Doom? Yeah, Keanu uh. Reeves to play everybody. Okay. <laughs> like there's no reason not to get Keanu Reeves, you can get Keanu Reeves, okay? Um, so there's I mean, yeah, and, and adding that, like just the casting change changes that character and like you said, can do so many interesting things with it. And I think I think Miles Morales is such a great and amazing example of that. I mean, what uh, that I've I've enjoyed all of the Spider-Man movies. This Spider Into the Spider-Verse was so perfect, and and it it was that character that made it perfect. For mm -hmm. me. And also plays into this idea, like you know, it's still very fundamentally a Spider-Man story, having to juggle two identities, two you know that kind of stuff. So making that a biracial character, it maps perfectly, right? Mm -hmm. Having that also be like, okay, so the struggle isn't trying to like make sure that you can make rent for your elderly aunt. It's trying to you know stay at the school that you were fortunate enough to get uh, selected in the lottery to go to, while also being Spider-Man, right? And the kind of like pressure that's on you um, in terms of the history behind like you know the, the opportunity to go to that school right that's a really compelling and so fundamentally tied to the whole notion of spider-man that i'm a, that you know it, when i read that i'm like yeah this makes perfect sense it's the 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 moment that i so i rewatched that movie earlier mm -hmm. today the moment that really just hit home for me is when they're they're throwing all those things at him and they're saying like hey can you can you do this can you do this can you do this and then and then i can't remember i think it might be gwen who says can you get back up no matter how many times you get hit? And right. that, that line feels so fundamentally different when mm -hmm. you're talking to a, a, a black boy. Yeah. Um, and it, then it does. So if it's Peter Parker, it's just, it's a fundamentally different character in that way, mm -hmm. despite going through very similar experiences. Yeah. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, spider verse, like if you haven't seen it, uh, go, it's on Netflix. Just go watch it. Like right now. It's like, perfect. <laughs> it's the perfect movie. Obey, obey traffic laws and stoplights, but you know, get, get to it as quick as you can. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks again to Marina Bridges and Dr. Ryan Martin and soon to be Dr. Marina Bridges, hopefully. Yeah. This is open. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, this has been another episode of Serious Fun. Thanks again uh, to the Brown County Library for holding a Comic-Con and having us here. And we'll see you all again next year. All right. My thanks to Marina Bridges and Dr. Ryan Martin. Wonderful chat, wonderful conversation. Loved having them on there. I'm going to do my best to get them on again. Uh, and thanks again to the Brown County Library for putting on Comic-Con and also putting up with me uh, for, what, the third year in a row now. Always a pleasure. Always love working with those folks. So thanks to Gillian and uh, Andrea and everybody over there at the library. And thanks to Kate Farley, our guru and mentor for our podcast network here at Phoenix Studios at University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Thanks again also to our pals at Stitcher and to you for listening. We'll have another new episode coming out soon. Until then, see you next time on Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts.